Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. George Orwell famously called the Olympics war minus the shooting. And alongside the feats of sporting glory, the Olympics just passed saw some extreme displays of nationalism emanating from China. There were the online nationalists attacking China's mixed doubles table tennis team for failing the nation when they lost to Japan. The men's badminton team were excoriated for losing to Taiwan. And a Chinese diplomat criticized the Western media for using an ugly photo of their gold medal winning weightlifter. This month, we're talking Chinese nationalism and the new cadre of aggressive diplomats known as wolf warriors with Peter Martin, a former China correspondent for Bloomberg in China. His new book is called China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Uh, We're also joined by Jessica Chen Weiss of Cornell University, also the China editor at The Washington Post, who's written a book called Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations. Jessica, when I was living in Beijing um, a couple of decades ago, the kind of nationalist outpourings that Louisa was talking about there, whether it was against Japan or the United States, they made Jiang Zemin's government really um, nervous and uncomfortable. I mean, is Xi Jinping's government more comfortable with encouraging these sorts of outpourings of nationalism? Absolutely not. I think you've you haven't seen the kind of outpouring on the streets that you saw, you know, reach its peak in 2012 uh, against Japan and the so-called nationalization of uh, sort of uninhabited islands in the East China Sea. But you've seen far more, or at least as much, comfort with allowing it kind of free reign online, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. And we are seeing a lot of online nationalism, but that's very much aided and abetted by China's diplomats overseas. And I wanted to ask you, Peter, a question. I mean, for those of us who were foreign correspondents in China, it's kind of a weird disconnect because we know those diplomats quite well. In many cases, when they were more junior in their career, they were our handlers. And, you know, these are often people who we've known as being very urbane, very sophisticated, very educated. And then they go overseas and they become these sort of crazy nationalists and behave in ways that seem quite alien to their character. Why do you think that's happening, Peter? There's been this astonishing transformation uh, in the last few years. I mean, even, you know, when I arrived in Beijing to work uh, with Bloomberg in early 2017, even then, you know, the foreign ministry spokespeople were were pretty um, kind of reserved in the way they expressed themselves. They they stuck to these quite bland talking points. And, you know, Chinese diplomats overseas were kind of playing the same game. And within a very short period of time, um, their approach had completely transformed. And, you know, the the, the foreign ministry spokespeople who, you know, in, in, in the past were, were capable of, uh, kind of periodic angry outbursts seem to be to be having them every day, and in many ways, um, the statements they were putting out were kind of indistinguishable from the voice of the Global Times, which you know, as you, as you say, not too long ago was really very different in tone to uh, to the Foreign Ministry. 
But I mean, is um, the Wolf Warrior voice an outlier? Because you did see, certainly at the start, um, Jali Jen or, or Muhammad Jali Jen, as he, he used to like to call himself when he was a, an obscure diplomat in Pakistan, the, the spokesman for MFA. Um, he, he would regularly get slapped down by his superiors for uh, for kind of crossing the line. So is it is it now mainstream? Is, is Does Jali Jen speak for MFA? So I, I, I kind of think of it like the foreign ministry has these multiple personalities that have existed since 1949. So there's always been this very brash, assertive, aggressive side to Chinese diplomacy uh, that we would now kind of identify as wolf warrior tactics, you know, delivering lectures at the UN, shouting at foreign counterparts, storming out of the room, all of those kind of things have a, a long pedigree. Alongside that, there's been this other tendency where where Chinese diplomats have been very effective at charming the world. You think of the, the 1950s and the Bandung Conference or the, the period after the Tiananmen Massacre where Chinese diplomats really engaged other countries and, and, and did their best to kind of sell China's system to the world. So those, those two approaches have always kind of coexisted and they've ebbed and flowed over time. And I think what we've seen is that at times when politics in Beijing has been very focused on uh, obeying the top leader uh, has become very centralized, very authoritarian. And um, we've seen ch- the tone of Chinese diplomacy kind of change to um, to reflect that. We saw it most dramatically in the Cultural Revolution. And I think we're seeing that in a slightly different way now under Xi Jinping. I mean, Jessica, you have written that China's foreign policy influences transactional and coercive rather than ideological in nature. Looking at it in that way, it seems that wolf warrior diplomacy is only helpful domestically in China. It doesn't really play well outside. So why do you think that we're seeing this uh, uh, more and more? So I think that there's a couple of things going on. One is the pandemic and the opprobrium that the CCP has you know, witnessed from around the world. And there's a real interest in defending uh, you know, the CCP's system of government from from all comers. And so I think that there is, one, this attempt, effort to not just defend, but also denigrate, right? We've seen this much more sort of pugilistic style, essentially to level the playing field, to say, you know, nobody else's system is better than ours. If anything, you know, we've outperformed every other system. So there is ideological in that sense, but usually, you know, what they're taking aim at is the, you know, specific individuals, um, the performance of particular countries, uh, rather than, um, you know, trying to convert other countries to socialism with Chinese characteristics. In fact, you know, countries like Vietnam that ostensibly share China's communist system, they have, you know, a raging fight, uh, you know, in the South China Sea and and, and don't find a lot of, or don't prioritize that ideological uh, commonality. So, you know, I think that the, you know, these, you know, Peter said it well, that there are these different elements of Chinese diplomacy, Uh, similarly with nationalism, that, you know, nationalists are given a longer leash when the Chinese government sees a diplomatic environment in which they want to show off their resolve, that they show they will not be pushed around. And it's when the government has seen it more in the CCP's interest to to show a magnanimous face to, to reassure others and diffuse potential crises that's when you've seen them, you know, pull in the reins, uh, you know, tamp down nationalist mobilization, whether that's online or offline. And you, it often occurs in a cycle, but I think you also can see this over time. Uh, it's not necessarily directly um, related to how insecure the government feels. It's more about what they're trying to achieve diplomatically. 
So right after Tiananmen, for example, trying to break through that diplomatic isolation, you saw them suppress anti-Japanese protests, for example, for the whole decade of the 1990s, even as they were rolling out the patriotic education campaign. But what about the situation now? I mean, it seems that those who are not wolf warriors, people like Tsui Tian Kai, who's just left as uh, ambassador to the U.S., they seem to be very much in a minority. Is it, could it be the case that the Wolf Warriors are kind of taking over the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and China's sort of public face? Well, I would say there that this is perhaps by design, right? Right now, uh, the overall signal that, you know, Xi Jinping has encouraged is to dare to fight and be good at fighting. And so those voices have been elevated, you know, literally promoted. Um, and so, you know, that's what we're seeing right now. I think it's a reflection of, you know, China's diplomatic intent right now much more combative than reassuring. And, and Peter, a big focus of your research is, is tr- trying to get inside the skin of, of Chinese diplomats who, you know, have been trained in a very peculiar way. You've got this great anecdote where you talk about other ministries calling them the, the Morfabu, the Ministry of Magic, because they're just so, so weird and different to other ministries. I mean, how, how are people inside feeling about this wolf warrior diplomacy? Surely there's some pushback from inside MFA. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to remember that um, as different as China's political system is, um, you know, to the U.S.'s or Britain's or, or you know, other Western democracies, there is something quite similar about the what makes someone want to become a diplomat. You know, if you if you're really convinced of the efficacy of military power, you're probably going to go join the military. But if you want to explain your country to the world and to make its case the best you can, you're likely to be drawn to diplomacy. And, and you know, Chinese diplomats, just like their counterparts around the world, have spent decades mastering foreign languages. They've, they've interacted deeply with, you know, the societies where they're based for a long, long time. And so there is this recognition that uh, as these tactics play out and all of these negative headlines and negative perceptions are driven, they're as aware as we are of the the damage it's doing. I just think that their, their primary audience is back home and there's not very much space at the moment in Beijing to push back against that. I, I remember having a, a conversation with someone who was involved in the trade negotiations with the Trump administration. And, and the, the person said, you know, if you are anything below minister level in Beijing at the moment, you don't want to be the person in the room who speaks out and has a dovish opinion about the United States, because that's not a safe thing to do. And so there is this kind of ratchet effect, you know, people expect that she is going to want to take a hard line and they're going to, and, and people in the system are going to try to match that or even exceed it um, just to stay on the right side of things. But Peter, the foreign ministry has always been quite powerless within the Chinese administration. Do you think having this really combative tone, basically it's aimed at this audience of one, does that actually help them gain power at home? Or is it just a reflection of how, how weak they are? I don't think that it's it's something that the foreign ministry has sort of consciously done in order to strengthen itself necessarily in into bureaucratic bargaining. I think that they have a much more kind of, you know, their, their role is to do as the leadership says, right? If the leadership wants to reach for military tools, they'll do that. If they want to use the propaganda system, they'll do that. And they expect that Chinese diplomacy will follow the tone um, that they that they lay out. And in the case of Xi Jinping, that is an assertive tone 
you know, which talks about China getting closer to the center of the world stage, which pledges never to cede an inch of territory to foreigners or, and will not allow China to be, to be bullied or, or, or humiliated. And so there's, there's that layer of kind of trying to match Xi Jinping's rhetoric. And I think there's also, there's also another layer of calculations which is going on. Is you know you think about um, the signals that Chinese diplomats have in, have watched come out of the Xi administration. 1.5 million officials punished in the anti-corruption campaign. Term limits abolished. The widespread use of political study sessions and, and criticism and self-criticism sessions. Experimentation with re-education camps in Xinjiang. You know these kinds of tactics are, are ones that many people in the foreign ministry grew up watching in China and they you know they understand exactly what those kind of, uh, of political moves might herald for, for people who work inside the system or who, who get on the wrong side of it and so I think you know there's like there's a there's a side of this wolf warrior behavior which is driven by ambition and there's a side which is driven by fear and the, the combination of those two things is really quite powerful yeah but I mean, I mean Peter just to, and, and for both of you really um, I love that you open your book with and anecdote from the Pacific and finish it with one too, both of which are kind of crazy. So on the first one in PNG, four diplomats storm into the foreign minister's office and basically try to shake him down to change the final communique for APEC. And in the last one, you have um, a, uh, a Chinese diplomat putting a, his Taiwanese counterpart in hospital um, over, uh, the, over the design of a, a cake. Um, so, so sort of these kind of insane actions. Now, you're arguing that this is about back home, but when you say back home, do you mean their bosses in the party or do you mean the Chinese public? That's that's a great question. I think I think it's uh, you know it's kind of all of the above. Um, it's it's Xi Jinping, it's the political elite in Beijing, and it's also um, the Chinese public. You know, uh, officials that I've spoken to, just just like actually in the the Hu era and the Jiang Zemin era will will go online and they'll read what people are writing about the foreign ministry. You know, when there were border clashes with India. Uh, I know that people in the foreign ministry were very sensitive about what, what online, online nationalists were saying about them. And, uh, and certainly during the trade negotiations with, with the Trump administration, this idea that uh, somehow Chinese diplomats were signing on treaties um, was, you know, was very worrying. And, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, I'd love to hear Jessica's thoughts on this, but I, I think in, in, in some ways, maybe it's even more worrying under Xi, because whereas those those voices were out there criticizing officials um, 10, 20 years ago, uh, there, there seems to be quite a lot of commonality between what those online voices are saying and, and the way that Xi Jinping sees the world. And so I, I imagine that that's quite a concerning combination. I was just going to say, you know, Peter brings up India, which I think, you know, is a very interesting example of a case in which, you know, the Chinese government actually kept nationalist voices rather quiet on that topic. Uh, It's one where they didn't disclose the deaths of, you know, the particular soldiers until months later. Um, And it's, you know, in stark contrast to how that clash was covered on the Indian side. So you... I don't disagree with 
with Peter's characterization, but you might be led to believe that there is no room uh, for de-escalation uh, as a result of these dynamics, but that's not true. When the top leadership doesn't deem it in their interest to let things get out of hand, they are quite capable of using the full apparatus uh, to, to keep things on a lower simmer. I'm not saying that they were, you know, making concessions left and right, but just, you know, they kept things, uh, you know, shy of a certain threshold uh, of military escalation there and then proceeded to, you know, with a disengagement. Uh, so they're still quite strategic, I think, in how this is being used, even though, of course, that strategy then does create these incentives within the institution uh, for individuals to participate or, you know, run afoul of the way the political winds are blowing. But it, it, it seems this kind of pressure isn't just faced by diplomats now. I mean, recently we had journalists and, and even the editor of the rapidly nationalist Global Times being attacked for not being nationalist enough. I mean, is, is it possible that, you know, that Beijing could lose control over these nationalists and either be forced into a major crackdown on them or be pushed by public pressure to do something silly in the South China Sea or, or over Taiwan. So I definitely think that there is a risk that you know, this is playing with fire. It, it is not a perfectly oiled, you know, turn it up, turn it down. There are costs of restraint. They, you know, feel that that sensitivity, I think, is real. Um, and, and it can make a difference around the margins, and I think it could really make a difference in the event of a real crisis. I think over time, you know, when they're looking out at, you know, what's what's you know what what's a strategic vision there is room to dial it down or dial it up but in a particular instance in which some foreign actor perhaps or government has crossed some line uh they would fe- i think face very intense pressure and in that moment have less flexibility than they would have otherwise had they not you know been sort of allowing this to go forward um i have a question for you jessica too it seems um the amplifying pressure of social media means that these kind of dynamics are magnified across society, right? And today we just saw this case of this actor, Zhang Zhihan, who went to a wedding at the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan, which is dedicated to sort of, you know, it's a symbol of Japanese militarism. And he took all these photos there and he immediately had all his advertising contracts, 24 different companies, including Coca-Cola, they all cancelled his contracts immediately. It just shows that that kind of nationalism seems to be playing really well now. When companies are playing along in this way, doesn't that make it harder, lessen the sort of um, room for manoeuvre for the government itself? It's really interesting, uh, you know, that instance, because we've seen so much vitriol directed at others. Um, Japan hasn't borne the brunt of this for a while in in quite the way that they did, you know, during the 2000s and then the early 2010s. But it's obviously, you know, it has very deep roots. and, And I think many companies are, you know, eager not to run afoul of this either. So there's a market dynamic too, um, which, which makes it, you know, kind of an echo chamber. So it may, it's very, it's harder now to determine whether, you know, any individual case against a particular company or celebrity or whether it's the NBA is, is really state directed or there are various organs within the state or companies even that, that pile on and seek to, you know, profit. There's a lot of mixed motives here and you have many different actors uh, playing a role. So it, it does make it more difficult to determine, you know, just how much was this desired by the state or is this just kind of the frothing that's, that's been unleashed by this overall uh, context. 
And a question for you, Peter, just on the economic front. We're seeing these reports now that China's kind of moving towards local procurement, not buying things from foreign companies, but instead going local. Do you think nationalism is one of the reasons that drives this? I mean, I think it could be sort of one one background factor, but but for me, I, I, I would see it as kind of a combination of a couple of things, you know, first, this like long-standing industrial policy goal that, that Beijing has of, of creating domestic capacity for, for all kinds of production or all up and down the value chain. And that's something that, that has, you know, has continued under Xi, uh, been, been doubled down on under initiatives like Made in China 2025, and then really was exacerbated uh, during the Trump administration as U.S. officials started to talk about decoupling. And I think there's this real fear of of, of China being left in a place where its domestic industry is is vulnerable. You know, its its military capabilities are vulnerable. Um, its economic growth and therefore you know political legitimacy are threatened by being. By being cut off and so i would see that kind of push toward domestic production as as uh more driven by those kinds of concerns but you know nationalism is certainly wrapped up in that mm. i mean it's it's fascinating because that was i mean as as dong Xiaoping's sort of approach to foreign policy being completely ditched because i mean the real central tenet of it was um you know by all means pick fights here and there but don't mess up the us china economic relationship so I mean, where, where does MFA stand on that? That's been one of the most striking things, actually, about Xi's uh, approach to foreign policy is just this willingness to um, not not just pick fights, but to to pursue initiatives right across the board and an incredibly wide-ranging, multifaceted set of, of goals. Um, and, you know, in the past, when Chinese diplomacy has been most effective, it's it's often been, as you said, when the leadership uh, decided on quite a limited set of goals. So, you know, after, after Tiananmen, let's uh, remove sanctions and, uh, you know, bolster the legitimacy of the regime and let's pursue trade ties with the rest of the world. And when those objectives were set, the Chinese bureaucracy, including... Uh, Chinese diplomats could kind of get into line behind it. And it's quite hard now that she is pursuing, you know, this this massive economic project with the Belt and Road, uh, you know, assertiveness and island building in the the South China Sea, a tougher approach with Taiwan, a willingness to, to quarrel simultaneously with India and Australia and European countries. You know, the, the list goes on and on. And I think that has made it... Um, much, much more difficult um, to kind of pursue an effective diplomatic strategy. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that that in practice, hide and bide has been set aside. There's been no official statement of that from, from the leadership. And I know that there are certainly uh, lots of people in the foreign ministry who, who hope that that debate will be um, revived at some point and who, who still favour a more low-key approach, um, but, you know, that they're not in the ascendancy at the moment and they don't feel um, particularly empowered to, to speak out. I guess just the, the kind of final, like, the, the, the caveat to that is that no one thinks that China can replicate the diplomacy of the early 90s exactly, right? Like, China, the Chinese economy is now just too big to um, to kind of just dial all the way back to that approach, and there's this there's this phrase that people like to use in Beijing: you can't hide an elephant. 
right? And so I think even if even if some people want China to move away from some of these like wolf warrior and more more assertive tactics, no no one thinks that just a return to keeping your head down is gonna is gonna fly. Yeah, and I'm and I'm really glad you referred to it as kind of an across the board approach because it's not just MFA out there; it's the state-owned companies, it's Mofcom, and also the United Front Work Department. Um, which has almost the same DNA as MFA in the first place. They were all built on the friends and enemy mantra. But, I mean, how does MFA view a shadowy organization like United Front? Are they comfortable working alongside them, or, or do these two things just operate completely separately? Uh, I, I mean, I think they're pretty independent. The reporting lines are quite different. You know, as you know, one one organization kind of flows straight through the party bureaucracy and another one goes through the government bureaucracy. And so even inside... Uh, the government, Chinese ministries have a tough time talking to each other below a very senior level. The interagency process is 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 weak, um, and that is especially true when it comes to government institutions speaking to party institutions. And so, you know, in that case, I think it really is a matter of um, everyone looking at the marching orders that come down from the party center and trying to figure out their own um, approach. Um, you know, there are. Uh, I, talk to some of the the experts on Chinese influence in DC about this there are um United Front officials who are posted to Chinese embassies and uh you know so often are given a a, a, a kind of a different title a non, non-United Front um title when they get those positions and so there certainly is some um coordination but it's it's not something that's easy to work out on kind of a lower um, bureaucratic official level if that makes sense. Um, Jessica, I was going to ask, in your research, you've also looked at the relationship between uh, states and nationalist players and how different governments use nationalism to, 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 its own, to, to its own ends. I mean, does China do it differently from other countries? That's very interesting. You know, China, of course, is a highly authoritarian state, far greater capacity, I think, to anticipate, you know, manage uh, the degree of nationalist protests and mobilization, um, whether that's in the streets or online. That said, it's not perfect either. Um, and, you know, the degree of, uh, you know, citizen engagement online, the degree of connectivity, the sheer number of, of people using social media, et cetera, makes the challenge of monitoring, you know, that much more difficult. So, you know, China both has enormous capabilities, but also, you know, enormous challenges. Um, and so, you know, compared to, you know, other authoritarian regimes, for example. I do think that there are some commonalities, for example, in how Vietnam has managed anti-China protests. Um, but when you look, you know, a little bit farther afield, you know, to sort of these sort of competitive hybrid autocracies or liberal democracies in Southeast Asia, like, you know, Cambodia or Thailand, um, you see it, it's it's more complicated, right? Because you have um, standing opposition organizations where, you know, the ability to shut things down is not quite as, you know, top down and directed. So it looks a little bit different. Um, and then if you go all the way to a democratic context, of course, uh, then you have, you know, far less, I think, control over the strategic timing of these kinds of demonstrations of nationalist mobilization, but also, uh, you know, perhaps less, less pressure. And I mean, Jessica, the other 
comparison that you you've looked at, of course, is is China and Russia, who are, who are great pals these days, and and you know share a lot of the similar um, diplomatic DNA, if you like. Uh, I mean, are China and Russia's approach, uh, approaches to diplomacy um, quite different these days? I think the biggest difference is, I think, their sort of geostrategic objectives. Uh, Russia seems to be much more disruptive. Uh, you know, China may be heading in that direction, but they're not there yet. I, I still think, you know, China rhetorically is uh, defending the existing international order, although, you know, of course, they will argue that it's not the same one that the Biden administration, for example, uh, claims to defend the rules-based order. Um, but nonetheless, that, that rhetoric of moving closer to the center of the global stage and really being a, you know, a defender of the United Nations Charter, et cetera, that's really much more uh, China's rhetoric. Um, and they have, you know, even though there's growing concern about Chinese influence, uh, they haven't interfered, for example, in U.S. elections in the way that, that Russia has. Um, and so there, I think that there are different... That, you know, what's on the horizon looks different for China than it does for Russia. So a question for both of you, and, you know, this is something that's been bothering me for a while, is the formulation of foreign policy is based on Mao's dictum, who are my friends, who are my enemies, which sounds like something that an eight-year-old in a playground might come up with. Now, these diplomats are sophisticated people. They've been educated at places like Georgetown University. How do they feel about the friends and enemies mantra? And, and is there any pushback against it? Um, that's a, that's a really fascinating question. I, I, I have n- I've never asked anyone, uh, you know, how they feel about the, the friends and enemies mantra. I think you can, you can certainly, you can see, uh, reflections of that approach, um, to politics. I think in, in some of the language they use about, um, you know, f- uh, forces which are friendly to China and, and forces which are hostile to China, um, so, you know, and, and, and in some cases, like quite explicit characterizations of particular individuals or organizations a- along that framework. So I think of um, Chris Patton, who was, of course, the, the last governor, British governor of Hong Kong. Um, and in that position, you know, invited all kinds of just in- extraordinary performative anger from Beijing, personal insults and uh, and and it, all kinds of name calling. What did they call? They called him well a prostitute for a thousand years and a tango dancer. <laughs> That's quite good. Yeah, you know exactly. <laughs> they uh, they were they were pretty artistic in their approach to criticizing him. But what what was amazing was you know in, in one of his books he tells this story about um, you know when he he was he got a job as a EU commissioner, uh, Tang Jiaxuan. Tang Jiaxuan, the then foreign minister, met with him and he said. You know, we have decided that you are overall a positive force in <laughs> EU-China relations. And just this, you know, this complete 180 in Beijing's approach to him, which I think shows a little bit of that kind of friends and enemies mantra being being played out in the sense that there is this categorization that's going on, but also just highlights this point that this this stuff is rarely and perhaps almost never personal right it's all about like how does that what is the role that this person serves right now and how does that interact with Chinese interests and and sometimes when you're watching one of these kind of vitriolic storms go off it it seems like it must be so personal and there's such great sensitivity involved and the Chinese state will talk about having its feelings hurt and all this kind of stuff but you know these are these are tactics it's not it's not really personal 
So what you're saying is those of us who, I won't mention any names, who've lost our Friends of China badge, uh, that there's still a possibility to win it back. Yeah, just get yourself appointed in the EU Commission role. It's, uh, it's a simple <laughs> formula. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. And Jessica, I mean, how, how does that square with your research? I mean, is that, um, is that what you've been finding? I'm not sure exactly about the friends and enemies, but there is a sense in which, you know, Chinese diplomacy often will give leaders a while to assess, you know, to what extent are they likely to be amenable to working with Beijing to advance Chinese interests. And then at some point after, you know, enough time, there's sort of a grim trigger in, to use political science speak. There's a, we've, We've determined that you are beyond uh, redemption and we will give you the cold shoulder. And and usually this is toward a democratic leader. So until you have left office uh, and then we will, you know, hope that the next administration has learned that lesson and we will, you know, begin the process of thawing the ice at that point. Um, And so, you know, there, there is this, it's very, it is, it is quite strategic and it's, it's, it is not, as Peter said, not personal. How long did they give Donald Trump? Well, you know, you had the phase one trade deal quite late into his administration. And I think it really was the onset of the pandemic shortly after that and the decision by the Trump administration, as well as other Republicans, to then place all the blame for the disastrous U.S. coronavirus response, uh, you know, onto China. uh, That really then followed by the series of actions across the board that we really saw, you know, accelerate the descent into where we are at present in U.S.-China relations that I think, um, you know, then you saw the campaign against Pompeo heat up, et cetera. Uh, Peter, you you argue that wolf warrior moves often coincide with these periods of domestic political tension. Should we then read from these displays of nationalism during the Olympics that all is not well for Xi Jinping at home? Uh, (laughs) I don't don't think that that particular um kind of extrapolation necessarily works i think i think a bit much more on um you know these these tactics stem from the efforts of individual chinese diplomats to kind of look after themselves and make sure that they're capable of being promoted and then they're not gonna land themselves in trouble um and uh in 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 some ways i mean I, i i think that it's probably a reflection actually of xi jinping's strength Right. They they perceive him and the approach that he lays out to foreign affairs as uh, being you know, the, the be all and end all, the first and last word on, on what Chinese diplomacy should look like. And that's what they're trying to um, to kind of work towards. Um, so, uh, you know, like it's, you, you know, as well as I do, it's impossible, nearly impossible to read the Beijing tea leaves on elite politics. But I don't sadly, I don't think that wolf warriors are the key. I mean, could could it even be that that some of these people who who are kicking up a fuss are the ones who are relatively marginalised within MFA? So, I mean, a lot of the examples you give are from places, um, you know, in in the Pacific and so forth, where you could imagine an MFA official wouldn't, uh, you know, view his career having worked out exactly as he planned it, with sort of you know coffee in Paris and so forth, and instead he he finds himself on Nauru. <laughs> um, I mean, is it could it possibly even just be career motivations that are encouraging? people to be so so strident I, I think there's a lot of that going on what what people want i think is a platform to promote themselves right whether that's in pursuit of, of a promotion uh, internally uh climbing you know climbing up 
the bureaucratic ladder or if it's just a matter of uh kind of staying safe on the you know on the right side of, of political trends and i think that diplomats who are posted overseas especially to these small places they're going to have a smaller share of uh attention from beijing right like they are not going to dominate diplomatic cable traffic in the way that people in washington or you know paris might um, and they, they also don't have the opportunity to uh, behave in meetings inside the foreign ministry when they're being watched by their superiors. And so Twitter is kind of a handy platform for those people, I think, when they want to show their loyalties. Yeah, and Charlie Jen was a Twitter phenomenon, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, looking forward... Um... The next big event on the horizon seems to be the Beijing Winter Olympics, and we're already seeing growing international calls for boycotts, you know, uh, editorials in the Washington Post calling it unforgivable, warnings that no Canadian athlete will be safe in China uh, following the sentencing of Michael Spavor uh, last week for spying. Peter, do you think this could be shaping up to be a public relations catastrophe for Beijing? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly it's uh, <laughs> the trend lines don't look good. If I, you know, if I had to get into the business of predictions, which is all, always difficult, I think that there will um, that most of the debate at the moment seems to center on kind of this idea of political boycotts, right? Not necessarily uh, withdrawing athletes from the games, but but not sending high level um, political representatives. And so I think that would be an area that uh, you know is, is is well worth watching, and 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 actually is something that um, Beijing would take very very seriously um, because they they view um, sporting competitions like this as a route to pursuing uh, international legitimacy, but 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 more important, showing the Chinese public that uh, they've received international legitimacy and, and strengthening um, the regime. And Jessica, what are your, I mean, what will you be watching in the next few months? Do you think that Beijing can unwind itself from all these sort of naked nationalistic aggression? Or if it continues dialing up that rhetoric kind of driven by all these forces at home, what, what, what kind of endpoint? do you see uh, as, as approaching? As, as Peter said, the trend lines aren't very good. Uh, as I, you know, wrote uh, last year, you know, we ought not to, you know, stand in the way. In some ways, China's nationalism is um, self-defeating in this way. It, it, let it run aground on its own. Don't necessarily get caught in the tit for tat every time they do something we need to counter, uh, certainly rhetorically, but even in terms of what we're doing around the world. Uh, not every gain for China is necessarily a loss uh, for the United States, and and they're not necessarily winning as many friends uh, as you know as we might think. So ultimately, you know, well, can China dig itself out of this hole in terms of you know the opinion of most developed democracies? Right, the approval ratings of China and Xi Jinping are at their lowest, uh, lowest of the country since since Tiananmen. But you know, in the developing world opinion is is considerably higher. And so I think there remains a real question as to whether or not we will see any kind of recalibration. We saw some glimmer of that in, you know, she's, you know, speech about creating a more lovable image, but then that wasn't really followed up uh, by the change in the tenor of various Chinese di diplomats. So, 
you know, as we head into this sort of run up to the Olympics, like I think we'll have to see maybe Delta will, you know, require <laughs> everything be virtual anyway. And so, you know, perhaps there might be, um, I don't know, uh, a way forward that we, we can't really anticipate. So I'll be looking closely to see how the continuing pandemic and the restrictions that that imposes throws a wrench into all of these, um, you know, diplomatic and, and political struggles. Uh, Jessica Chen Weiss and Peter Martin, thanks for joining thanks us. so much. It's great to be with you. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you Tana from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now. Bye for now.